selections from Genesis 43, chapters 43 and 44, starting on page 36 in your pew Bible, starting with chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and you set him before you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. Then to chapter 44. Then Joseph commanded his steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then the brothers tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, oh my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The word of the Lord. 
Well, Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our, our series through the life of, of Joseph. And before we, we turn to this passage, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that it teaches us. We thank you for the gospel of Christ Jesus that it proclaims to us. And Lord, we, we pray that you would apply these things to our heads and to our hands and to our hearts as the people of God. And Lord, that, that all that follows here, um, everything that will be said about the text, I do pray that it would be faithful to your intentions to this passage. And we ask this, Lord, in the name of Christ, who we proclaim, and in the power and the efficacy of the Holy Spirit that he lavishes upon us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, University of Virginia uh, ethicist and, and theologian Charles Matthews, he, he points out that, that humans all do something. We all want to understand and we all want to explain our lives in terms of a story. That's because we want to make sense of our lives. We want to make sense of the things that happen. We want to make sense of, of who it is that we are. And so to do so, we have to tell a story. But the problem is, is that this story becomes a moving target. For instance, Matthews asks us to reflect about how we might tell our story now versus how we might have told it 10 years ago. And chances are a lot has happened to you in the last 10 years, things that you probably never would have expected. And, and now because of those events, those two stories are going to take very different forms. And reflecting on this, Matthews, Matthews explains that, that in these retellings, at, at different points in our own history, we have what we might call drafts of ourselves. With each retelling and, and all of the revisions and all of the additions that go with it, we have drafts. We don't yet have what we might call the definitive version of our biography. These are only drafts of who we are and the story that we're in. And whatever you think about yourself and your life now, at best, it is a draft. Why are they only drafts? Well, there's, there's, there's many reasons, but one key reason is that we are still waiting for the full end, the consummation, the culmination of the story. And how can we fully know how to even tell our own small story when we're still waiting for this end. Matthews, he, he puts it like this. He writes, Our lives are not our own, and not yet even fully given to us. We will be given to ourselves only eschatologically. And what's Matthew saying here? Well, when he speaks of eschatology, he's, he's talking about God's wonderful culmination and fulfillment of all of history. And so Matthews is telling us that the only true and full ending of our story is the one that God will work for us at the resurrection, at the restoration of all things. Only then will we understand ourselves and our stories, and will that understanding not be a kind of draft? Only then will we come to our definitive biography. We can't know fully any character in the middle of the story, as we talked about in the kids' sermon. 
If we stopped halfway in Narnia, we would think that Edmund was only a traitor and not a king. If we stopped halfway through Harry Potter, we might think that Snape was only a villain and not a martyr. If we stopped halfway through Lord of the Rings, we might think that Gollum was only a nuisance and not a necessity. If we stopped halfway in our own stories, don't you think we might make the same kinds of mistakes? And so what does that have to do with today's passage? Well, quite a bit. During our last sermon on the Joseph narrative, we, we looked at the beginning of that process of Joseph's forgiveness of and his reconciliation with his brothers. In today's passage, though, as we look at the brothers' return to Egypt, we're going to look at that process from the other angle, from the perspective of Judah. And we're going to see that this is not the same Judah that we saw before, but at the same time, it's also not the same Judah that will one day be. In understanding the story of Judah, we're going to better understand the story of ourselves. And so let's look at today's passage under three headings. Judah's past, Judah's present, and Judah's future. Let's start with Judah's past. If you remember at the beginning of the Joseph narrative, things don't begin so well. Judah and his brothers, they almost kill Joseph, and eventually they decide to sell him into slavery instead. From there, Judah lies to his father, Jacob, about what happened to Joseph. And then immediately afterwards, at the start of Genesis 38, we read this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. And this verse is telling us a lot. Commentator Leon Cass writes this about Judah's actions of leaving his family. Cass writes, Judah heads out entirely on his own, seeking a new life. Yet his act of independence is also an act of unbrotherliness. It is an act of indifference and abandonment. Just like that, Judah decides to abandon his entire family. And from there, if you remember, things get worse. Judah has two sons, and they die because of their wicked behavior. And this leaves Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, a widow twice over. Judah then promises his third son, Shelah, to Tamar, but he actually has no intention to see this promise through. This would then leave his two oldest sons and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, without heirs and without any family support. And Judah doesn't really seem to care about any of this. In fact, the only thing we actually see him caring about is physical pleasure and revenge. Remember how Tamar tricks Judah into lying with her. He makes her think she's a prostitute. And then they conceive two children. And when Judah finds out about the pregnancy, he is furious. True, he has lied to her in a way that will make her life much, much more difficult. True, he does not seem to really care at all about her well-being, but once she does not make good on her word, once she seems to do something that's against him, that's when everything changes. Judah declares in public, bring her out and let her be burned. And so ask yourself, what if the story of Judah ended right here? Who would Judah be? Well, he is a murderer. He is a liar. 
He's a man who's turned his back on his father and his brothers and his sons and his daughter-in-law. He's a man of little to no self-control who chases after fleeting pleasures. He is self-righteous. He is angry. He's a hypocrite. Judah is alone. He is alone. What if Judah's story had ended here? What story would Judah be telling with his life if it ended here? His story is one of refusing and rejecting the obligations that other persons, even his own family members, put upon him. He refuses and he rejects any real community. And he uses people as tools for his own purposes and and pleasures. Think of how he treats Tamar. And this is the story of being totally alone. A story that finds its ultimate ending in the story of hell. C.S. Lewis puts this truth well. Lewis writes, Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable. To love is to be vulnerable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Okay, you might say to yourself, I could see how Judah is setting a course like this, but I'm not doing that. I have not done the things that Judah has done. But the thing is, is that scripture calls us to look at our own lives, to look at our own hearts with the most penetrating gaze. It calls us to admit and to confess that we all do, in some way, shape, or form, the things of Judah. Like Judah, we all push people away. We have all at times hardened our hearts and walked away from someone that we know we should sit down and have a conversation with to work through some issue. Like Judah, we have all sized up another person in terms of what they could do for me. Maybe the connections they might provide, the professional recommendations they could offer, maybe the ways they could boost my own status. Like Judah, we have all applied to others ethics that we really have no intention of meeting. For example, the philosopher Charles Taylor, he, he, he tells about an experience of a friend from Thailand who visited a, a particular political group in Europe. Uh, this group wanted good things, and, and they were arguing for the dignity of all people and the need for respect of all persons. But Taylor writes this about his friend. Taylor says, He confessed to utter bewilderment. He thought he understood the goals of the political party, but what astonished him was all the anger, the tone of denunciation, of hatred toward the established parties. The people didn't seem to see that the first step towards their goal would have to involve stilling the anger and aggression in themselves. He couldn't understand what they were up to. And right here is the story of our modern political moment from from, from all sides of the spectrum. Right here is the story of social media. Right here is the story of our own judgmental hearts that are curiously careless in applying our own voiced ethics 
to ourselves. We are furious about that group's rage. We can't stand the pride of that person who who seems so much less virtuous and sophisticated than us. We're so thankful that we would never be as self-righteous as that person. We condemn rage with our rage. We condemn hatred with our own hatred. We condemn self-righteousness with our own self-righteousness. In a million different ways, despite the blood on our hands, we, like Judah, yell, bring them out and let them be burned. The biblical warning is that this is the story of isolation. And isolation is the story of hell. What then is Judah to do? What then are we to do? Well, as we'll see, this is not the end of Judah's story. This is what we might call a draft of his story. And this brings us to our second point, Judah's present. The turning point in Judah's life comes with Tamar's words to him, words that she speaks in response to his accusation of her. She presents the things that Judah gave her as a pledge when he took her for a prostitute, and she says, By the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And if you remember, this is not the first time in the life of Judah that we encounter the phrase, please identify. The same Hebrew phrase was used by Judah and his brothers as they presented the coat of Joseph, stained with the blood of a goat, to their father Jacob. They say, please identify, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And as one commentator writes, these words jar Judah's memory and cut more deeply than Tamar ever could have expected. Judah here comes face to face not only with his sins against Tamar, but also his sins against Joseph, his brother, and also Jacob, his father. And what does Judah do? This is important. Surprisingly, maybe, Judah recognizes his wrong, he repents, he confesses his own unrighteousness in the presence of all he says of Tamar, she is more righteous than I. And and, and Judah's not saying that Tamar's conduct is is righteous, but rather it is more righteous than his own. And we, we, we talked about that in our sermon on chapter 38. But what happened here is Judah has accepted what he has done. He's acknowledged his lack of righteousness. Uh, He doesn't, again, seek physical intimacy with Tamar, and, and he actually moves to rejoin his father and his brothers. He seeks reconciliation with them. The story of Judah is changing. His heart is beginning to soften, and that brings us to today's passage. After the brothers' first visit to Egypt, which we looked at a few weeks ago, They soon find themselves without food, and so they're going to have to make another journey to Egypt. But for this second visit, they're going to have to take Benjamin with them. But at first, Jacob, their father, refuses to let Benjamin go with them down to Egypt, and we see that Jacob's dangerous favoritism is continuing. But Judah responds by saying this to his father, Send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die. 
both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. We notice two important things here. The first is that Judah, unlike his father Jacob, is actively taking responsibility for those around him. Judah, who earlier earlier abandoned his family and community, he's now doing all that he can for those that God has placed in his life. He readily takes upon himself the responsibilities of his family and his community. And this fulfilling of relational demands, this is righteousness. Theologian and pastor Sinclair Ferguson, he says this about righteousness. He says it involves right relationships. Relationships between ourselves and God, between ourselves and others, and in the world at large. And this makes sense, right? Because when Jesus summarizes the law of God, he summarizes it by way of two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And the law of God just is the description of perfect human righteousness, and this righteousness, as Jesus shows us, is inherently relational. It's about how you love God and how you love your neighbor. Perfect righteousness just is perfect active love for both God and neighbor. And this is why Tamar, at least one reason why Tamar was more righteous than Judah in chapter 38. Even though she was not holy in the right either, she acted for the sake of fulfilling her obligations to her family. Obligations that Judah had completely rejected at that point. And here, Judah is being more righteous than Jacob. Jacob's ignoring the needs of his family and his community. And he's doing so because of self-pity. In response, we have to ask ourselves, are we fulfilling our relational demands? Are we fulfilling the demands of our family, of our church, of our friends, of our community? The people that God has actually placed in our lives? If not, we are rejecting the relational righteousness that God is calling us to. Here's one quick diagnostic. What is one deep maybe even desperate prayer request of at least three different people in this congregation that you are not related to. If you have attended One Ancient Hope for a while and you can't answer that question, that's a red flag. Or ask yourself this. If you have been attending here for a while and you don't know the names of many of the children in the church, that is a red flag. If you are a member here, you have made a vow to the congregation and to the children to help raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so let us not be like the earlier Judah who does not make good on his family pledge. Because if we don't know the names of the children, if we don't even know that, then there's no way that we are making good on that vow. Either way, I would encourage you after the service to to intentionally spend some time talking to at least one of the kids in our congregation. To not help disciple the children in our midst, that's to reject righteousness. It is to reject the relational responsibilities that are placed upon us by those who need us most. Think about it like this. Hell is the, the place without righteousness. 
because it is the complete isolation from all relationships, it is also the complete isolation from all of the responsibilities for righteousness that responsibilities that relationships put upon us. Think about it like this. Just like we can't light a candle where there is no air, we can't have righteousness where there is no relationships. Air is the medium, it's the context, it's the environment for the flame of the candle. Similarly, relationships are the medium, medium, the, the context, the environment for righteousness. There can be no candle flame without air. And there can be no righteousness in hell where there are no relationships. Or think about it like this. Relationships are like the wires that the electricity of righteousness move through. You cut the wires, no electricity. You cut the, you cut the relationships, no righteousness. But here, because of his change story, we see that Judah does take the demands of his relationships upon himself. Something that we are also called to do. But here's the tricky thing. In modern life, it is easier and easier to think that we are engaged and involved in the lives of the people in our life, but actually be anything but. For instance, back in uh, 1999, a neighbor of the novelist Barbara Kingsolver, the neighbor was, to, was surprised to find out that, that, that Kingsolver had not yet heard of John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane crash a, a few weeks after it had happened, if, you're, if you remember that event. But King Salva responded to the surprise of her neighbor with an essay that said the following. She wrote, It seems somewhat voyeuristic and, and also absurd to expect JFK Jr.'s death should change my life any more than a recent death in my family affected the Kennedys. On the matter of individual tragic deaths, I believe that those in my own neighborhood are the ones I need to attend to first by means of casseroles and whatever else I can offer. I also believe it's possible to be so overtaken and stupefied by the tragedies of the world that we don't have any time or energy left for those closer to home, the hurts we should take as our own. And how much greater is this temptation 24 years later now with social media and smartphones and more and more technology that pulls us out of our lives, that pulls us away from the people that we're actually with. Ask yourself, do you know more about the life of some celebrity than the people in your own family or church or community? Do the tragedies of famous people who have no direct connection to your life keep you from actually attending to the people and the tragedies right in front of you? Does a focus on international events that have no direct connection to you, does that keep you from the happenings in your own family or church and community? Do you scroll on your phone reading some news story about events occurring halfway around the world while your friend or your spouse or your child who sits right across from you at the dinner table is right there hungry for your attentiveness. It's good to know what's happening in the world, but not at the expense of what's happening right in front of you. Friends, a key part of righteousness is lovingly attending to where God has placed you and who God has placed you with. This right here is where you are. 
And this is where God is calling you to exercise righteousness. Don't let your phone or your social media scrolling convince you otherwise. And as for Judah, in his case, we do see Jacob eventually relenting. Judah does lead his brothers back to Egypt, but Judah does something else. Again, he tells Jacob that if Benjamin does not come back, then he, Judah, will forever take upon himself the blame for the loss of Benjamin. And this is not just empty rhetoric. This pledge, unlike Judah's promise to Tamar, is, is not a mouthful of empty words. And we see Judah and his brothers, they do go back down to Egypt, and they come and they stand before Joseph. And Joseph, upon seeing Benjamin, Joseph sends them to his own house. He shares a meal with them, and all of them eat. They, they eat and drink to their full, and, and we see that Benjamin enjoys actually a five-fold portion. But then Joseph tests his brothers. He wants to see if over the last 22 years, God has worked a change in them. Joseph sends them off. He, he refill, refills their money in the mouth of their grain sacks, but he also does something else. Joseph commands his steward to place his own silver cup in Benjamin's bag. From there, the brothers are sent off, and even though they don't realize it, they're traveling with this silver cup. From there, quite abruptly, they're stopped by Egyptian officials, and they are accused of stealing this cup. They're told that the one who has the bag with the cup in it, he will be put to death. As you can imagine, of course, the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, and the brothers are then brought back to Joseph. Joseph tells Benjamin, tells them, Joseph tells them that Benjamin alone will bear the penalty, the penalty of death for this crime. As for the others, they can go back to Cain and they can return to their father. And I believe what Joseph is, is, is doing here is, is he's trying to see what his brothers will do. These are the very same brothers who sold Joseph into slavery 22 years earlier. And now he wants to see if the father's new favorite child, Benjamin, will he be treated in the same way? Will he happily be left in a foreign country to die alone? Will they actually rejoice in this turn of events and say, good riddance, Benjamin is gone? Joseph, I think, wants to see if God has worked a change in their lives. And while we can't speak for everyone, we can speak for a change that has been worked in one brother's life, Judah. He responds by explaining that his father will die if Benjamin doesn't return. He explains that he, Judah, has personally pledged to his father to bring back Benjamin, even if he must bear the consequences and the blame. He tells this Egyptian leader, a leader who he still doesn't know as Joseph, he says this, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah says to Joseph, let me bear the blame. Let me even bear the penalty of death that Benjamin has merited. I have pledged to bring Benjamin back to my father, and I will do whatever is necessary to see that through. And as we'll see next week, Joseph responds to this by, by weeping, and he reveals himself to his brothers. 
Any, any hardness that might have still remained in Joseph's heart is melted away by this true act of brotherhood, this true act of taking responsibility for another, this true act of righteousness. And it is here in this act that we are directed to Judah's future. And this brings us to our third and final point, Judah's future. Remember the words of, of Charles Matthews that we looked at at the beginning of the sermon. He says this about the true ending of our story. Our lives are not our own and not yet even fully given to us. We will be given to ourselves only eschatologically. Everything short of God's completely fulfilled purposes for our lives, anything short of that is only a draft of ourselves. Who and what you are is only a draft. It is not your definitive biography. The definitive you is the you that God will one day raise from the dead at the resurrection. On that day, you will love God and neighbor perfectly. You will glorify and delight in the Lord every single second with inconceivably great praise and joy. Think about that. You will love God and neighbor without any envy or jealousy or spite or anxiety or lust or anything that now bogs down our heart. But here's the thing. This is actually what God calls us to do now. God actually commands us to love God and neighbor perfectly. I kid you not. God really does command you to love God and neighbor perfectly every single second of every single day. It really is true that all other stories are stories that end with the isolation and the aloneness of hell. It really is the case that either perfect love or perfect loneliness are the only two human endings. Really, really think about that. And I completely understand if you think this is ridiculous and the standard of perfect love is a horrible way to understand and to judge what we do. But I also encourage you to hear God's command to perfect love as the great compliment to human dignity that it is. Remember, everything comes back to our ending, or, or, or at least what our ending is supposed to be. Think about an analogy. We, we would never put on caterpillars the responsibilities that only a butterfly can fulfill. For instance, the, the monarch butterfly, it migrates up to 2,500 miles south from Canada and the US all the way down to, to central Mexico. I got that fact from Wikipedia, so you can, you can trust it. Don't worry. <laughs> However, if we demanded that a caterpillar make this trip, this trip of 2,500 miles, the caterpillar would object, right? And it would be right to object. Or at least the caterpillar would be right to object if it wasn't meant to be a butterfly. Actually, if we held the caterpillar to this task, we would actually be affirming the deep dignity of the caterpillar. We would be showing the caterpillar what it is meant to be. And if the caterpillar was to take the charge, to take the responsibility of traveling this far, it would need to know that one day, very soon, it is going to get wings. In the same way, when God holds us to this perfect standard of love, he's actually affirming the full and deep dignity 
of the human. He's laying upon us responsibilities that show us what he intends us to be and what he intends us to become. Again, it all comes back to our proper ending, to what God intends our ending to be. But to start with, in a fallen world, we all have to realize that we begin in the same place as Judah when he is hurling his accusations at Tamar. And left to our own devices, we are set up for the wrong ending. Again, as Matthews tells us, it's by our ending that we understand our lives, ourselves, our story. If the wrong ending just is the perfect isolation of hell, then the right ending is the perfect loving communion of God and neighbor. This is what we are meant for, nothing less. And please, do take that as the divine compliment that it is. You might say that this ethic is is way too exacting, but that's because it's much too wonderful. It's not because it's too cold or cruel or callous. If we're actually going to set our sights as high as they can go, then nothing but this perfect love will do. And just as Judah, when confronted by Tamar, just as he did, We must repent and we have to confess that another is more righteous than I. In fact, we have to confess that another is wholly righteous. But this is not Tamar. It's her great, 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 great grandson, Christ Jesus. This is God, the Son, become human to perform the ultimate act of righteousness. Christ's act of love for his brothers and his sisters is the greatest act of righteousness that the world has ever known. We were in need of true righteousness. We all failed to love God and neighbor like we should. We all rejected what our relationships required of us. But Christ... He has loved God and neighbor perfectly on our behalf. He has graciously provided every single thing that we were lacking. Even more, Christ did what his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Judah could only point to. Remember that Judah offered to take the blame for Benjamin's supposed theft before his fellow humans. But Christ... Christ takes upon himself the guilt that we all bear before God himself. He did this on the cross. And like Judah, Christ did this to reunite a father with his child. Christ did this to bring his brothers and his sisters back to God the Father. This is Judah's future. His future descendant who will make all things, everything, right. And this descendant, Jesus Christ, is also the one who secures the certain future of the resurrection for Judah, his true and proper ending. After living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died, Christ is raised from the dead, free from all death, free from all corruption. This is Christ present, and this is our certain future. One day... When Christ returns, we will enjoy perfect and loving communion with God and with each other in a world without sin and death. And these perfect relationships, this just is perfect righteousness. This is the butterfly of our our present state as caterpillars. And even now, Christ has sent us, given us his spirit to begin loving God and neighbor in a way that we couldn't before. 
And we are not yet perfect in this love. But in the Spirit, we are entering into the cocoon of the resurrection. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you are not now who you most truly and fully are. Right now, you are only a draft of what you will one day be. Do you believe that? Ask yourself, what sin do you think you will never be able to overcome in this life? Do you know that one day you will throw off that sin like a dirty garment? And so now, pray and believe, even after all of these years of discouragement, that God will begin that healing process. To believe that any particular sin is beyond God's grace is to deny that the definitive biography of who we are is the resurrection. Ask yourselves, in what relationships in your life right now are you not seeking righteousness? Do you need to seek reconciliation? Do you need to seek forgiveness? Do you need to give forgiveness? Do you simply need to sit down and have a conversation with someone? Because one day, speaking in the terms of this life, it's going to be too late. One day, your children will move out and you won't see your kids every day. One day your colleague will move. One day your aunt will die. One day you too will pass. One day, with respect to this present life, we will lose the chance to do the righteousness that God has called us to do with the people that he has placed us with. As both the psalmist and the author of Hebrews tell us, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today will not always be here, but today, today is today. And the Christian does this not out of guilt, but out of gratitude for the righteousness that has already been worked and freely given to us in Christ. It's from gratitude that we are called to love our neighbor this is a key way that we praise and glorify Christ for what he's done for us. And we do this because we know the story that we're telling. It's the story that ends with the certain and true hope of the resurrection. This is the story that Christ has won for us. This is how our story ends. And so this must be the story that we are telling now with our lives. But even here, this wonderful ending is only the beginning. Few have said this better than C.S. Lewis in the ending to his Chronicles of Narnia. He writes this, All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover in the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before this is Judah's future. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, this is your future too. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ that he has won for us and lavished upon us. Thank you that this is our story. Give us glad and grateful hearts. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.